Hey, my name is Ben, Ben Foote. I'm the teaching pastor here at Flatirons, long time no see. Um, so we're all doing this church online thing right now. And, you know, for, for a lot of us, like that's all we've ever experienced with Flatirons. We've always watched it online. And then for others of us, it's taken some time to get used to it. But I do want to say this at the beginning. I'm thankful for the internet, you know, and I'm thankful that wherever you are right now, maybe you know, you're watching from your couch or maybe you're listening in your car right now or you're here in Colorado or you're out in Siberia or even worse, you're like out in somewhere like Kansas or something like that. I want you to know that wherever you are, I'm glad you're here with us together in this strange new, hopefully not forever season of virtual church. Glad you're here. Uh, especially glad you're here this weekend because we are starting a new three-week series that we're calling Survival 101. Right, it's a series where we're gonna kind of park in the book of Philippians. That's a letter written by a guy named Paul in the New Testament because Philippians is almost like a survival guide to having unshakable joy. What I mean by that is joy, no matter what life throws at us. And I'm hoping, you know, that the, the topic of, of joy is helpful and applicable for most of us right now because I know it is for me at least. I mean, recently I feel like my emotions are like a roller coaster just all over the place. In, in fact, a, a few weeks ago, here's an example. I went out and I went uh, fly fishing with my brother-in-law, Nick, early in the morning. I got into fly fishing this summer. I am absolutely obsessed with it right now. But the, he and I, the two of us, we get up at 4 a.m. We drive out into the mountains and we fish. After that, I'm driving back into work and I'm just happy right? Because it's only 7.30 in the morning, but I've already spent hours fishing. I was in great company. Nick is one of my best friends. I got to watch the sunrise. I got to stand in the freezing river in my Crocs like a bad boy. (laughs) It was just a good way to start the morning. But I'm driving into work and then suddenly my phone goes nuts. It's that Amber Alert thing, you know, and it's telling me that all of Colorado is now required to wear masks when we're out in public. And it's like my mood just went from happy to just heavy almost immediately. I mean, it was a literal reminder on my phone that, you know, nothing's really normal right now. And I've had this emotional like back and forth ping pong a lot lately. You know, like I'll go to a restaurant. Remember those days? Uh, I'll go to a restaurant. It's like, I'm eating good food and I'm happy, but now I got to go to the bathroom. So it's like, where's my mask? Cause I can't leave without my mask. Now I feel heavy. Or Allie and I and the kids, we've been watching baseball every single night again. That makes us happy. At the same time, there's like cardboard cutouts of people in the stands because no one can show up to the stadium. Oh, now I feel heavy. Feels like you can't escape the fact that just about everything has this feeling of like low grade heaviness attached to it. I'm sure most of you feel the same way. You know, for Allie and I, I think that's intensified a little bit as the school year creeps up on us because we're sitting around, we're going, we don't know, like, are the kids going to go to school? And, you know, if they do, let's be realistic. Like for how long are they going to go to school? If that's you, you might be thinking like, yeah, and if they don't go to school, how will that affect our work schedules and our ability to produce a steady income? You know, you've also got the, the racial tension in America right now. You've got a nation, a, a world full of people trying to figure out like, when is this COVID stuff going to get figured out? On top of that, in America, we have this election season coming up, you know, which I predict we're going to handle really well. Don't you? 
<laughs> I feel like we're gonna keep our level heads in the midst of this election season. You get it. It's just, we got people scared of the virus. We got people losing jobs. It's affecting our mental health. In fact, based on data from the National Health Council, beginning in April, their pre, or, uh, per day anxiety screenings increased 370%. Their per day depression screenings increased by 394%. And they had more than 21,000 people call in considering self-harm or suicide in that month alone. That's just the National Health Council. Obviously there's, a pretty serious lack of joy in the world right now. So that's been, you know, in the back of my mind. But then a few weeks ago, I'm thinking through like, what could we teach during this three week series? And two things happened at once that kind of sealed the deal for me. The first one is I was studying the book of Philippians in the morning, while at the same time, I'm watching reality TV in the evenings. Let me explain. So Allie and I, we recently discovered this show called Alone. All right, alone. It's actually seven seasons in, which is great because we have a lot we can binge watch. It's on the History Channel and is fantastic. All right, if you're not familiar, here's the gist of the show. They take 10 contestants, all of whom are like trained wilderness survival experts. And they drop these 10 people separately, like they'll never encounter each other, separately out in the middle of nowhere. Every season is different. So they've been to uh, Vancouver Island. They've been to Mongolia, Patagonia, the Arctic tundra. Before they're dropped off alone, they're given a couple weeks of training on how to use all the handheld camera gear because they're gonna have to film themselves. Like they're gonna be truly alone in some of the harshest places on the planet. And the winner of the show is simply the contestant who can survive the longest. It's last man standing. Whoever can survive the longest without being overcome by loneliness and quitting, you use a sat phone, you can hit a button and quit. Or you got to survive the longest without getting like really injured, that's happened. Or survive without literally starving, that's happened. You've got to survive without catching all of your gear on fire, which has happened. And it is, first of all, it's great TV. All right, I'm not like necessarily, I don't take pride in admitting this, but I like have great joy watching people get attacked by wolverines, you know, or watching people cry in disgust as they eat rabbit intestines. I don't know. I probably need, you know, a second counselor. But that's actually not the main reason I'm so deeply drawn to the show. The main reason is that I'm learning life lessons through this thing. And I know that sounds corny, but it's true. It's been the same for Allie too. Because here's what's interesting about the show, all right? All of the contestants, like I said, they're all wilderness survival experts. They know how to do this stuff, right? They know how to hunt and, and trap and build shelters and make fire. They're also all using similar tools. You know, they got like fishing line and ax and a fire starter and a tarp. They're all on an equal playing field. But in every season that we've watched so far, the contestants who do well, the ones who make it like 60, 70, 80 days in the wilderness, those contestants all have an extra tool in their pocket that the other contestants don't have. And what they have is the added experience and practice of embracing hardship. I mean, simply put, they have learned to suffer well. They have this attitude of like, I'm not just out here to survive, I'm I'm out here to thrive. One of the contestants called it Sir Thriving. 
And then because of that, all of the contestants who do well, they have this like attitude of gratitude thing going on, if you know what I mean. Like every time they get food, as an example, they give thanks, right? Some of them thank God, some thank the universe, some thank the animal itself. And then because of this outlook and attitude, the contestants who do well are just joyful, Like they're joyful even when they haven't eaten for a week and they're joyful even when they're in pain or exhausted. They have had a lifetime of experience and practice in embracing hardship and it shows and it makes them winners. In fact, in in one of the seasons, and this is a spoiler alert, just so you know, in one of the seasons, the contestants actually go with a family member. So there's two of them. And there are these two Canadian brothers who are hilarious. They're always goofing around and picking on each other. But eventually one of them gets sick off of like really bad fish. And he's had abdominal cramping for like over a week now. He's miserable. And so his other brother, he suggests tapping out and quitting. But the one who's sick, he just looks at him and he goes, no, Ted, forgive my terrible uh, attempt at a Canadian accent. He looks at his brother and he goes, no, Ted. No one suffers like us, Ted. We're going to be all right. Just turned a little Scottish, my accent there at the end, but you get it. This guy looks at his brother and he goes, no, Ted, no one suffers like us. We suffer well. We're going to be all right. And they go back to goofing around and, and picking on each other and they keep their joy in the midst of hardship. And they won that season. The, the life lessons that Allie and I are learning from the show, there's two big ones. One of them is it's a good thing to embrace hardship. It's good for the soul. And then the other one is it's actually possible to have joy in the midst of that hardship. Goes completely against the grain of our cultural values because our culture values not embracing hardship, but avoiding it and living a life of ease. And so the question is how, how is it possible? And why would it be a good thing to embrace hardship and maintain joy in the midst of it? And like I said, at the same time that I'm watching alone in the evenings, I'm also studying the book of Philippians in the mornings. And coincidentally, Philippians is like the guide to maintaining unshakable joy, even in the midst of hardship. I mean, the thesis of Philippians is basically, is, is this, Paul, Paul writes this and he says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, not just when times are good, but always. And all throughout Philippians, Paul just keeps harping on that idea. He goes, hey, no matter what is happening and no matter how bad it gets, don't lose your joy. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And I will be, you know, 100% honest and vulnerable with you. I've got nothing to hide with you. Even as a pastor, I am still the first person in the room who rolls my eyes at that concept. It's like, yeah, right, dude, you're living with your head in the clouds. At the same time though, I got to pause and and pay attention to it because I know the context behind Philippians. I know it comes from a legit source. What I mean is, you know, it's one thing if let's say you lost your job as an example. It's one thing if you lose your job and then your neighbor comes over who's still happily employed and he's making six figures and he comes over to your yard and he goes, hey man, just be joyful in the midst of unemployment. If that happens, you're like, shut up, right? Before I smack you in the mouth. But that's not what's going on between Paul and the Philippians. Because at the time that, that Paul wrote this letter, Paul is writing while he's imprisoned in Rome for being a Christian. 
And then he's writing this letter in prison and he's sending it to a group of people who live in Philippi who are being actively persecuted for being Christians. And I do not mean that they're being made, like, made fun of and stuff. I mean that they have family and friends who are being murdered because of this faith. I mean, Philippians, it's a total suffer fest. You know, there's one guy who's suffering, writing to a group of people who are suffering, but they're actually not wallowing like in their collective misery. Instead, Paul's telling them to suffer well and to embrace the hardship. And he's saying it's possible to like base your, your joy on Jesus and what he's done rather than just on your circumstances. And to me, at least that sounds great, but it also sounds insane. If I'm being honest, it's like, it feels like this other level Zen stuff. It's the, the same feeling I get when I'm watching the show alone. And I'm watching these people like maintain their joy in the midst of hardship. It's like, what are you smoking? And quite frankly, like, can I have some? And so I started reading every verse in Philippians through the lens of like, what does this have to say about maintaining joy in the midst of suffering? And I was humbled and honestly shocked to discover that like just about every little advice nugget that Paul gives for living a life of unshakable joy, every piece of instruction he gives, I typically do the total opposite. And so my study of Philippians is kind of, it's come with this nonstop feeling of like, ah, so that's why I'm a pessimistic person with constant low grade depression. You know, like, cool, 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 cool. Makes sense. It's a sad joke, but I like sad jokes. See, my, my personal study of Philippians, I'm, I'm starting to discover like the survival 101 for the Christian person. I'm starting to discover it's a survival guide for unshakable joy, even in the midst of suffering and hardship. And even though I'm just like scratching the surface of what I know Philippians has to teach me, I'm already better for it. And so throughout the series, I, I simply want to share with you what I'm learning about unshakable joy from the book of Philippians with the hope, of course, that you learn something from it and that it resonates. I also, I do believe that this series is good if you're a Christian and if you're not a Christian, because Jesus says like, listen, you cannot have control over all of your circumstances, but you can have control over the way that you handle them right? Your outlook and your approach. And he says it's possible not only to just survive, but thrive even in the midst of hardship. And he says he's strong enough to make that possible for you. For the Christian person, this is survival 101. But if you're not a Christian, I mean, doesn't more joy in your life sound like a good thing? And the way it worked out for me, and I'm just like a firm believer in this approach. I think you should try it. For me, the lifestyle of Jesus made sense and made my life better, even before I completely understood and made sense out of Jesus himself. If you're not a Christian, this might be one of those series, it's good to put your toe in the water. Just take some of the practical tools that we're talking about with joy and just try them out. And maybe you'll have more joy in your life. And then maybe if Jesus is right, about what he has to say about joy, you know, maybe he's right about some of the other claims that he made too. Now, before we totally jump in today, I know it's a lot of setup, but we're almost done. There's one more area where you and I have to get on the same page. And it is this, what do I mean when I use the word joy? Because you know, in our culture, it is almost impossible to remove the concept of joy from like the emotion department. 
right? So we hear the word joy and we think of like this giddy, happy head in the clouds feeling. Joy is, you know, what you eat when you eat a good, or what you feel when you eat a good steak or joy is what you feel when your kids do something that makes you laugh or makes you proud. And because of that, we assume that joy is like tied to our circumstances. So today I had a good day, so I felt joyful, but today I had a bad day, so I do not feel joyful. And so it's weird to hear Paul command it, you know, be joyful. Because for me, it's like, I really don't have much control over my emotions. I either am going to feel joy or I'm not going to feel it. And so that must mean that there is more to the biblical idea of joy. There is more than just a feeling of happiness, a giddy feeling. There must be some aspect of biblical joy that you can have control over. You can like will it to happen in your life. And so in an effort to save some some time here, I'm gonna kind of skip over the background and word study stuff. I'm gonna cut right to our working definition of joy as Paul understands it in the book of Philippians. And I've kind of mashed up some definitions of biblical joy from other pastors that I look up to and that I trust. But for the rest of the series, whenever I talk about joy, what I mean is this. Joy is a feeling deep in the soul that comes from knowing that Jesus is still at work in our lives and in our world. Let me break that definition down real quick and then we'll get started. All right, so joy is a feeling deep in the soul, right? It's a good feeling, but at the same time, it's something deeper than just feeling giddy and having your head in the clouds. It's a feeling that's like sturdier and more foundational than just I'm happy because I saw puppies on Instagram or whatever, right? Or I'm happy because I saw a funny video on TikTok, you know, rest in peace, TikTok. So joy is a feeling deep in the soul, deeply rooted in your foundation. And it's a feeling that comes from knowing. Let's pause there. Because knowing is a verb, right? That is something that we can do. It's something that we can choose to act on. You can always choose to know more and learn about your favorite sports team or a hobby or a a subject in school, or you can choose to learn and know more about Jesus, which according to Paul leads to more joy. So joy is is a good feeling deep in the soul that comes from choosing to know that Jesus is still at work in your life and in your world. That's what we're talking about when we talk about joy in this series. And that's why Paul can command you to live joyfully. Because to him, it's more than just a feeling of like fleeting surface level happiness. It's not an emotion that is tied to our circumstances. Instead, he sees it as a good emotion that is the result of a mindset. And so Paul says, if you want to hang on to a deep sense of joy in the midst of hardship, a rooted, unshakable joy, then you need to know that Jesus is still at work in your life and in our world. We got to know that. We got to know more about that. We got to learn it. We got to remember it. We got to reflect on it, especially when times are tough. And so for the rest of our time today, I want us to know to, to learn or remember or reflect on the fact that Jesus is still at work. He's still at work. This belief that Jesus is still at work, it's, it's like the foundation that Paul builds all of his letter on. The theme weaves its way in and out of the entire book of Philippians. Paul is just confident that Jesus is not asleep at the wheel. 
And instead he's still at work. And if you quickly breeze through some of these verses in Philippians, you'll see the level of confidence that Paul has that Jesus is still at work. And so I wanna do that real quick. Let's kind of rapid fire our way through some verses in Philippians. This is the theme of Jesus still being in control and still being at work and what it means for our lives. So for example, at the beginning of his letter, Paul says this, he says, I always pray with joy. Pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he says, I pray with joy because you and I are following Jesus together. And then he says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day you die and meet him or he shows up here. See, when it comes to this whole, Jesus is changing my life from the inside out thing. According to Paul, Jesus is in charge of that. He began it. He will carry it on. He will complete it. What does that mean for us today? It means that Jesus is still at work in your life, like in your personal life, your personal maturity, your spirituality. You skip forward a bit bit, and then Paul says this. He goes, now I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. All right, you gotta remember that Paul's in prison in Rome when he wrote this. So he's basically saying, hey, I'm in prison, that sucks. But at the same time, you gotta know that my imprisonment in Rome is part of this bigger plan. And Jesus is using it to spread his life and story and message to the world. What does that mean for us today? It means that Jesus is still at work in your life and he's still at work in your life, even when it's hard, even when you have suffering. Let's keep going. Later, Paul recites an early Christian hymn, like an old worship song, like the kind that we sing around here. And the last verse of that song goes like this, says, therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place. And he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I don't, I don't know where under the earth is. I think that's a shout out to flat earthers. <laughs> But uh, he says, every tongue will eventually confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King to the glory of God, the Father. What does that mean for us today? It means that Jesus is still at work in heaven and all over the earth. And it also means, and this one's important for us today. It means that Jesus is still at work as a King. He has not fallen asleep on the throne. And eventually every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that, yep, Jesus is King. He is still at work and he's still king. A couple more. Skip forward. Paul eventually says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So what he's saying is not only is Jesus king, but the main way that he is spreading the better life of his kingdom to the world is through you and through me. He says, it's God who works in us. Paul says, it's enough to feel fear and trembling or in other words, it's enough to like send a chill down your spine. What does that mean for us today? It means that Jesus is still at work, not only in your life, but through it. And then last one, near the very end of his letter, Paul says this, he goes, listen, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This last verse kind of sums up all the other ones that we just read. 
Because Paul is basically saying this. He goes, listen, the secret of being content, of having unshakable joy in your life, whether life is good or bad or hard or easy, whether I'm dealing with life or death, the secret of having unshakable joy is knowing that I can make it another day because Jesus is still at work. He's giving me the strength I need to survive. See, the the biblical idea of a deep, lasting, unshakable joy is rooted in knowing that Jesus is still at work. But in order to understand this. So I guess in order to take it out of the realm of like, that's in the Bible and it's interesting to know and put it into the realm of like, how does this make my life better? Let's get practical. All right. So knowing that Jesus is still at work, how does that lead to joy in our lives? And to get there, I think we should talk about first what happens if you do not have confidence that Jesus is still king, he's still at work, and he's still got this place under his control. And best as I can tell in my life, at least, is that that mindset leads eventually to either being a control freak or a martyr. And neither one of those things in my life is steering me toward joy, but they make sense. Here's what I mean by that. So maybe some of us lean more towards the control freak thing. But at the same time, like if you never knew or chose not to believe, or you simply forgot that Jesus is in control, he's a king over a kingdom, then of course you have to become a control freak. Because I mean, if there's no king around, that means you, you are in charge. That means the world truly is chaos and it is up to you and you alone to stave off that chaos for as long as possible. When you don't know if there's a king, you become a control freak. In in my life, at least, this is why I find myself obsessing over my kids' behavior, like especially in public, because I convince myself I'm in control over them. And so their tantrum is a reflection on me. And of course, I'm responsible for raising my kids the best I can. But at the same time, I forgot. I forgot that that doesn't mean I'm their king. In my life, this is why I have some pretty like legit OCD tendencies, it, for real. Like I collect books. I love reading and I love books. So if you come to my house on my bookshelf, all of my books are in order alphabetically by the last name of the author. If there's multiple books from one author, they're in order of publication date. It's crazy person stuff and I admit it. But it's like I'm manic for establishing a little bit of order in what feels like chaos. It's like, I forgot there's a king in control. This is why on a bad week, I become a absolute perfectionist with my job performance. I beat myself up over the littlest stuff and I obsess over doing the best job possible. It's like, I've convinced myself that if I'm gonna keep this job, it's gonna be up to me and me alone. I forgot that there's a king and he has me in this job today. He really might take me out of this job tomorrow, but either way, it won't be a mistake to him. And I'm here today, so I guess I can chill out a little bit. Maybe you see this in your life too, right? This is why we try to control and dominate relationships. This is why we fudge numbers and we manipulate coworkers in order to climb the corporate ladder. This is why a promotion feels unstoppable and then a layoff makes you feel like a failure. It's all control. This is the source of so much anxiety and fear and stress because the truth is, if there is no king, then all of your existence is up to you. And if that's true, there is not a wide margin for error. 
Like it's really too risky for you to screw this thing up. So we get into this mindset, you know, of like whether or not I get COVID or whether or not I keep my job or save my marriage or I find someone to marry in the first place, you name it, all of that stuff is up to me and me alone. And so I had better get this thing under control. When you don't know if there's a king, you become a control freak. Is that bringing you any joy in your life? I didn't think so. Then on the flip side of this whole thing is the martyrdom concept, right? This kind of especially applies for anyone who's like, I'm pretty sure there's a king in charge. I'm pretty sure there's a God in control. I just am not sure if he's paying much attention to me anymore. In other words, when you don't know if the king is good, you become a martyr. This is when, like, if you're a Christian, you start getting that Job mentality, right? You know, it's like God's just out to punish me and he's enjoying it or he's forgotten about me or he doesn't care about me anymore. You can't find any of that stuff in the Bible, but we begin to believe it anyway. If you're not a Christian, you might say that the universe is out to get you or karma is here to take its revenge and balance the universe, right? Honestly, I see this martyrdom thing kind of creeping into my house lately, been a few days where Allie and I will sit on the couch and feel sorry for ourselves over stuff that is admittedly, I admit it, it is unimportant to begin with in the first place. Like I know that people are walking through much harder times right now, but it's like we become babies or something and we sit on the couch and we just go, you know, we were gonna take the kids fishing today, but then it, it started raining and there's nothing else to do because the world is closed for COVID. And this was my only day off from work this week. And now we're just gonna waste it sitting around at home watching TV. The world is out to get us. Nothing ever goes right for us. Woe is me. Martyr complex. But if this martyr complex goes unchecked, it leads to defeatism and defeatism is crippling. Defeatism, maybe, maybe you'll recognize it in your life. Defeatism is anytime where you think about your future, the sentence always begins with the phrase, it's only a matter of time, right? It's only a matter of time until I screw this up and I lose my job or, or until I get some terrible disease. It's only a matter of time until my spouse walks out on me or my kids hate me. It's only a matter of time. It's like we, we become so convinced that like pain and suffering are right around the corner for us that like we can't even really enjoy the pretty good day we're having today. And we get stuck in that mindset because when you don't know if the king is good, you become a martyr. Is that bringing you joy in your life? I didn't think so. And so if becoming a control freak or becoming a martyr is not working out for us, if it's not leading to any sense of lasting joy, especially in times of suffering, then maybe it's worth it to take a page out of Paul's book. And maybe we try to actively remember that Jesus is a good king and he's still at work. And I say, take a page out of Paul's book, but really Paul stole it from Jesus in the first place. In Jesus's most famous sermon, it's called the, the Sermon on the Mount. He has this little section in there about not worrying about like what your future holds. And it's great. You should read it sometime. It's in Matthew six, but Jesus says, hey, don't obsessively worry, right? About what you're gonna eat or how you're gonna afford to, to buy clothes in the future because worrying doesn't do you any good. And you already know that, right? You know, you can't add a single hour to your life by sitting around and worrying, 
And he says, plus look at the birds in the air, right? They're not worrying about getting food to eat, but God is choosing to feed them. And, and look at the flowers of the field. Like they're not worried about buying clothes, but God has clothed them like more beautifully than kings and queens. And then Jesus says, listen, I promise you are more important to God than birds and flowers. He's going to take care of you. And then Jesus ends that section by saying this. He goes, so don't worry. You know, don't sit there and go, what are we gonna eat? And what are we gonna drink? And what are we gonna wear? He says, for the the pagans run after all these things. In other words, people who don't believe in God have a right to get obsessed about that. He goes, but for you, your heavenly father knows that you need them. And then he ends it by saying this, and this is the one that's really important for us today. He says, but seek first, instead seek first, his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these things will be given to you as well. Paul in Philippians and and Jesus in his sermon, they're saying the same thing right now. They are giving us a guide to unshakable joy, even in the midst of hardship. What they're saying is when the times get tough and when suffering sets in and when fear, anxiety and stress and worry begin to consume you, they both say the same thing. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So seek first, keep in the very, very, very front of your mind, his kingdom, the fact that Jesus is still king and his righteousness, the fact that not only is he a king, but he's a good king. Seek that first. And then all of these other things over time will settle into place. If Philippians is like, a survival guide to unshakable joy, then this is the starting place. This is page one. Unshakable joy is built on remembering that Jesus is a good king and he's still at work. He has still got this planet under his control. And if unshakable joy, as we defined it, is a feeling deep in the soul, then this week is not as much about feeling happy. All right, we'll get to that in week three. Instead, this week is much more about feeling safety and security because it is hard to be happy in an environment where you don't feel safe and secure. But if Jesus is a good king and he's still at work in our lives, he's still in control, then that means even in hardship and suffering, we can have some sense of safety and security because it would mean that Jesus is not asleep at the wheel. It would mean that nothing is like slipped through his fingers. He didn't drop the ball. He can't drop the ball. And it would mean that Yes, while your life or maybe the world in general seems chaotic right now, it also means at the same time that the world is not ultimately chaos. Instead, it is under control. It is under the ultimate control of a king and his name is Jesus. Paul says that one of the secrets to unshakable joy is just knowing that. It's just simply knowing that humanity is not floating around on this spinning rock alone at the total mercy of biological or human created chaos. Instead, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, humanity is living under a kingdom, under a rule. And even though it might not make sense sometimes, and even though I do not understand why the king will allow certain bad things to happen and others not to happen, and even though the kingdom sometimes seems divided or decaying or rebellious, it is still under control. Which means that Jesus was not surprised by COVID or its aftermath in the world or in your individual life. Jesus was not surprised 
by the polarized political landscape in our nation right now. And Jesus was not surprised by the wonderful things that have happened in my life. He was also not surprised by the terrible things that have happened in my life. And it means that the year 2020, it didn't play out this way because Jesus slept in too long or the world's problems got too complex for him to manage or he simply just straight up stopped caring about his kingdom. Instead, even in the suffering and hardship, Jesus promises that he is a good king and he is still at work and this world is still under his control. If we can actually put our trust and confidence in that, then we might actually begin living with some feeling of safety and security, even in turbulent times. Because it means if you lost a job or, or a marriage or a loved one, you name it, if that's you, it means you still have a good king. He's a good father and he knows what you need. And it might feel like it, but he has not forgotten about you. He has not abandoned you and he is still at work in your life. Seek that, seek that first. Make it the very, very first thing in the front of your mind in hard times. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. Remember that Jesus is a good king and he's still at work in your life. And then with that in the front of your mind, just watch as all these other things over time fall into place. This week, every week, the series, we're gonna throw out a challenge, but this week we'll start simple. All right, and the challenge is simply this. Over the next few days, whenever the anxiety or stress or fear sets in, when the circumstances feel overwhelming and out of control in the middle of that, hit pause and step back and take a breath and actively choose to remember that Jesus is a good king and he's still at work in your life. It means that you are, are not walking through each day alone. And you have not been overlooked by the God of the universe and he has not forgotten about you. He has not stopped caring about you. He has not stopped mourning with you. And he has not suddenly decided to take joy in punishing your life. Instead, he is still a good king and he is still at work in your life. And even though it might feel like chaos right now, he has still got this thing under control. Let's pray. So God, we are, there's just a lot of us who are walking through suffering and hardship. It's been a hard year. You know that. Uh, we, some of us, we've lost mental health. We've, you know, we've lost physical health. Some of us, we've lost relationships. We've lost marriages. We've lost jobs. And you say, you promise that we can put our trust and confidence in you in a way that will make us feel safe and secure, in a way that will eventually you know, lead to unshakable joy, even in the midst of suffering. It's just, it's hard to believe that in the midst of suffering. So God, what I'm asking for right now is, can you please take this concept and, and root it in us and make it true for us, not just in our minds, not just in theory, but in our hearts, let it play out in our lives. God, show us what it looks like to put trust and confidence in our safety and security in you in a way that leads to joy. And then God, I thank you for Jesus. God, I thank you first of all for what he's done for us, but then also the Bible says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. God, we thank you for for what Jesus has done for us. We also thank you for how he did it. God, we're praying that 
you help us not just worship him and not just learn more about him, but start to mimic him. Please show us what it looks like to endure suffering for the joy set before us. God, over the next few minutes, we're gonna listen to this song and wherever we are, maybe we're singing along in our car, we're singing along on the couch, or maybe we're just sitting there reflecting on the words. God, will you make the words of this song true to us? And will you remind us right now that no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how much we might be suffering, no matter how much hardship we might be walking through, you are a good king and you are still in control. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.